Thank you, everyone, for taking the time to join us today. Um, I am extremely pleased to have with me two members of the BBA's Labor and Employment Committee, Sasha Thaler and Bronwyn Roberts, today to talk about employment law in a recession. And while I don't know if we're technically in one, it doesn't mean that it might not feel like one if you're advising employers and employees uh, these days. They often joke that employment law is recession-proof, but it doesn't mean that our work doesn't change with the times. And so uh, let me start by introducing myself. I am David Brody. I am co-chair of the Labor and Employment Section here at the BBA. I'm also a partner in Sheridan Lodgins Employment Department, a member of the executive advocacy team. Uh, I focus on representing individuals in all manner of employment issues uh, with a tilt towards litigating those matters. Um, and with that, allow me to kick it to Sasha and then to Bronwyn to introduce themselves. Hi, everyone, and thanks uh, for joining us today. My name is uh, Sasha Thaler. I am a partner with Armstrong Teasdale in Boston, and I um, uh, practice on the management side of employment law. Good morning, everyone. Actually, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bronwyn Roberts. I lead um, Cooley's Boston Employment Law Group practice, and we do management side work. Um, we do a lot of deal work. We do a lot of counseling, and we do defensive employment claims. Thanks for joining us. We have an agenda that's very packed today. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Um, we're going to discuss reductions in force. Um, you know, if you're practicing in employment law in the past two years, you've seen that there have been a lot of layoffs and terminations. Um, I expect that you, if you are practicing in employment, have come across terminations, group terminations, and severance programs. As companies seek to stay profitable or in some cases continue to exist, we expect that there will be continued reductions in force um, throughout 2023. Um, we expect that not only will it be terminations, but other cost-cutting measures. In 2023, some of the largest reductions in force have already taken place. Thousands have been terminated, tens of thousands have been terminated across the United States, Google, Amazon, high profile companies like Microsoft, Yahoo, Zoom, and it's not just limited to technology. So we're gonna discuss those reductions in force. We're also gonna discuss some tricky issues in Massachusetts in particular with respect to payment of wages. From my perspective, we have one of the most difficult uh, wage acts to uh, comply with, uh, and that wage act has the steepest penalties, from my perspective, at least in the United States. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about issues with respect to executive and deferred compensation, whether in tough times you can defer compensation or not, uh, and what happens when you're intending to make a termination of an executive who may have certain contractual severance and other issues with respect to equity. So the terms furlough, layoff, and reduction in force are oftentimes used somewhat interchangeably. There are distinctions, uh, and when your clients reach out to you and ask that you, they need help with a, a layoff or a RIF, you're really gonna wanna drill down on what they're talking about, what they're asking you for. Um, furloughs are less common, but another cost-saving measure. What is a furlough? A furlough is a temporary leave of absence, typically less than six months. 
the good thing about a furlough uh, from an employer perspective and an employee perspective, it really signals that there's an intention to bring that worker back. Uh, another benefit for a furlough is that that worker may be able to not only collect unemployment during the time of the furlough, but also to continue to stay on the health plan. Typically, they'll go out on COBRA during that, but they won't be Sorry, they could be, they could continue on COBRA or depending on the situation, they may be able to just continue to make um, their contributions to the, to the um, health plan to stay eligible. Um, a layoff, what is an, a layoff? Typically that signals an indication that the employer intends to bring that, um, that employee back. I have seen a lot of confusion between the term layoff um, bringing with the intention of bringing somebody back or a reduction force, which really signals no intention to rehire. In either case of a layoff or a reduction force, employees are typically eligible for unemployment benefits. Uh, turning it over to you, Dave, uh, Sasha. Yeah, so when we're talking about reductions in force, which um, uh, uh, was the third category that, that Bronwyn mentioned. Um, one of the things that some employers really need to be thinking about is um, planning ahead for compliance with the WARN Act, the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act. Um, so uh, there are both federal and sometimes state law requirements, but they apply only to employers of a certain size. Um, depends on, on whether a state law applies, that size might be different, but focusing for the moment on um, on federal law, it, it covers employers with 100 or more employees. Um, when does it cover, right? So when does it kick in? Well, when you have either a mass layoff or a plant closing, as those terms are defined, again, in the relevant statute. And I'll, I'll dig into this a little bit more, but just to give an overview. Um, so in the case of an employer that's sufficiently large and that's having either a plant closing or a mass layoff, as those terms might be defined, the requirement is to provide 60 days advance notice um, under federal law of the intention to uh, to engage in that mass layoff or plant closing. So that's what I mean by um, in certain circumstances, you really do need to be planning ahead, right? 60 days is quite a long period of time and um, employers may not be used to thinking that far ahead with respect to cost cutting measures that need to be taken oftentimes on pretty short notice. Um, a quick notice, uh, a quick note about Massachusetts law in this regard, although Massachusetts often has um, its own unique um, uh, statutes relating to things like wages and, and other employee protections. Um, in this situation, we actually have a plant closing law that is um, both um, voluntary and, and not funded. <laughs> um, so you may have heard of the Massachusetts plant closing law. Um, I reference it here um, for folks who are interested. There is a, a fund that um, uh, is uh, created by statute, and the statute does provide for a voluntary prior notice. But um, in in this rare circumstance, Massachusetts is actually not at the forefront of um, requiring um, specific um, uh, additional um, requirements to be met in the case of a plant closing or a mass layoff. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, so, so I mentioned um, previously that I'd go into a couple more details. We do have quite a bit to cover, so I'm going to kind of speed through, but certainly as folks um, have questions, you're welcome to put them in the chat and I can slow down a little bit and, and co cover a couple things, or we can cover them at the end or certainly by email separately. But 
high level. So the Federal WARN Act um, applies to an employer with 100 or more employees. Um, when um, looking at which employees are um, counted um, for these purposes, you look at employers, excuse me, employees who have been employed at least for six months of the preceding 12 months um, and or who have worked at least um, 4,000 hours per week. And so um, I mentioned these uh, these criteria, not to necessarily dig into them to the very end, but just to note that simply looking at headcount may or may not be enough um, if you are approaching that 100 uh, employees uh, threshold. It is uh, very important to look at the details of what's required to determine whether, in fact, you have crossed that threshold for um, federal warrant applicability. Uh, and as I mentioned before, and I will throughout, there are some states that um, have their own state mini warn acts that apply at lower thresholds or in, in slightly different circumstances. Um, so the Warn Act, thanks, uh, Bronwyn, the Warn Act is triggered, as I mentioned, when there's either a mass layoff or a plant closing with respect to a mass uh, and, and with respect to a single site of employment. So even if an employer has 100 employees and, and to the extent they're, they're counted as having 100 employees, you may not still have a mass layoff or a plant closing that triggers the 60-day notice requirement in a couple of different situations. One is if your mass layoff um, doesn't affect a sufficient number of people at a particular location um, or overall. So um, what I mean by that is when you're looking at whether a reduction um, uh, triggers these notice requirements, you should look at what the single site of employment is where those reductions are happening. Um, small asterisk on that, um, that is also something that's really changing and developing um, over time as employers become more and more tolerant of remote employees and, and being very distributed. Um, there are some thorny and potentially not fully answered questions about who counts as somebody who is at a particular single site of employment for purposes of adding up the numbers. Having said that, assuming for the moment that it is um, sufficiently clear what the single site is, you want to look at whether there have been at least 50 employee terminations or will be 50 employee terminations in a 30-day period. Um, and if so, whether that 50% by itself, um, uh, excuse me, 50, those 50 employees are 33% um, of the workforce. Um, if it's a significantly larger amount, 500 employees or more that are affected, uh, you don't additionally look at the 33% threshold being met. Um, I also want to note that although uh, we say here that you want to look at the 30-day, at a 30-day period to determine whether a sufficient number of employees will be affected, um, there is also a 90-day period that needs to be looked at. And um, we can go into that a little bit further, but essentially if there is a, um, a su sufficiently large number of employees that are going to be affected over a 90-day period, but not a sufficiently large number affected in any given 30-day period, you may still have a mass layoff or a plant closing. So very important to be, again, um, planning ahead for these kinds of um, significant um, size terminations because uh, you may be surprised at when the notice requirement ends up being triggered. Um, I mentioned uh, mass layoff. Um, the other uh, the other piece of that definition is that the employment um, uh, the impact of the employment um, reduction has to be felt for at least six months. So um, Bronwyn had mentioned that um, uh, a layoff or a furlough might, for example, indicate that you are intending to bring people back. And indeed, if you have a layoff or a furlough or whatever you call it, but the employees are affected for fewer than six months and they're brought back, 
in fact, then you may not have had a mass layoff event. Um, shifting very quickly to plant closing, um, the difference in definition there is um, that the, the um, plant closing or the notice in the case of a plant closing um, uh, is required when there's a, an actual shutdown of a single site um, and if it affects 50 more employees. And in that situation, you don't look at whether it also affects 33% of the workforce. So that can trigger a notice requirement in um, circumstances that uh, mass layoff might not have triggered it. Uh, moving on. Um, um, so uh, the Federal WARN Act um, that I've been talking about also has a few exceptions that are um, maybe available in certain circumstances to uh, uh, compliance with the notice requirement. Um, I do want to note that these are very limited circumstances. The ones mentioned on the slide here, the faltering company exception requires that the company has been um, faltering at the time that the notice would have been required, and those um, requirements are very particular. So um, uh, with respect to that, as well as the unforeseeable business circumstances and natural disaster exceptions, if there's any chance that um, you're working with an employer that may uh, be thinking about taking advantage of these exceptions in order not to provide warn um, notice, I strongly recommend looking very um, carefully at what these exceptions would require um, because it may be surprising when when they actually don't apply. And I think, David, I was going to pass it on to you for the next couple of slides. So uh, that's just a small window into why people say that employment is one of the most regulated parts of your life. That's a lot to keep track of. And so I'm here to talk about so what? Right. If somebody violates these laws, what is the remedy? What is the leverage? And what changes for the different parties? What's the exposure to the employer? And so if an employer, <clears throat> excuse me, fails to comply with the 60-day notice requirement, it shall be liable to the aggrieved employee who suffers an employment loss as a result of such closing or layoff or back pay, the employee's benefit covering each day of the notice violation. Now, significantly in under the Federal Warrant Act, there is what people in this field would commonly know as fee shifting, which means that a prevailing plaintiff is able to recover their attorney's fees from the employer. Significantly, however, this is not fee shifting in the way that we see under discrimination statutes under the Massachusetts Wage Act. This is what's called prevailing party fees, which means an individual may bring a claim under the Warren Act, and if they fail and the defendant is deemed to be the prevailing party, there may be an opportunity for that defendant and that manager, that employer to recover their fees as against the employee. One can argue how practical that is, but it's an important consideration for anyone considering a claim like this. Uh, as we all learned from the Supreme Judicial Court in the Fur uh, Furman decision, prevailing party just means making an advancement on a material aspect of your case, which means losing can make the other side, or losing on one aspect can make the other side the prevailing party eligible for their fees. Um, as you think about what this recovery is, we all learned in 2022 in Massachusetts, as Bronwyn said, uh, the most difficult to comply with, I would say the most protective, the Massachusetts Wage Act looms large in this area. And a lot of work that all of us do is determining what is and what isn't a wage. And there's still a fair amount of dispute about that. What is undisputed is that violations of the Warren Act, failure to provide that notice pay is not a wage. And it's for a very simple fundamental reason, which is that the Wage Act protects earned wages, things you got because of your work. In this context, 
notice pay is not because of your work. As long as you're paid for the work you performed, the Wage Act is not violated, and there is no issue here. And so you may be able to recover under the Warren Act, but you can't get treble damages and attorney's fees thanks to the SJC decision in 2018 in Calixto. Um, Ronald, if you could slide forward to the next slide, please. Um, which gets to the next issue. Can you provide payment and benefits in lieu of notice? If you do it right is the short answer. It's not expressly, expressly provided for, but if you give people all the benefits to which they are otherwise entitled, there is no obligation to keep these people working. It's not that they have a right to work, it's that they have a right to notice prior to the separation. And so that's a viable option, but it takes adequate planning. It is not always easy to make sure that you're properly quantifying all of the benefits or that you're satisfying the terms and conditions of those applicable benefit plans as you move forward. And so there's no, there's no replacing competent counsel and proper planning in these situations. Um, the second consideration for people undertaking this path is whether or not you can simply have severance agreements signed. And as any good lawyer would tell you, maybe, right? The, the practical reality is, yes, should you get a release of claims, releases are valid as to Warren Act claims. You can waive that claim. But if you fail to do it, what happens when someone doesn't sign? You've got the same issues that arise. And so it becomes very difficult to lay out uniform severance packages in lieu of more notice because you've got risk for those who do not agree to take the package. Um, as this slide also points out, you need to be careful not to try and use the entitled more notice as your consideration for the severance. Anybody who made it through Contracts 101 Awake, may or may not have been me, remembers that you need valid consideration for your contract, which means something that the other party is not already entitled to. So if you're simply providing the benefits that they're entitled to under the Warren Act to try and uphold the severance agreement, you're going to have consideration issues. David, how does the plaintiff's bar, you know, if someone comes to your office and says, you know, I was terminated, it was a group termination, I have, I have a concern that uh, I might not have got the warrant notice that I should have received. Um, how does the plaintiff's bar sort of figure out, okay, well, we don't really know how many employees the employer has, and we don't know how many employees were terminated. So how do you sort of diligence that issue? It's a tricky situation because in so many of our cases, our employee only knows what they know. In somewhat more limited circumstances, they may have a few friends who have given them some information. I mean, as we'll talk about in a little bit, when I hear about group terminations, one of the first things I'm looking for are things like decisional unit data and other things required by the ADEA. Exploring a Warren Act violation is far trickier and candidly under most circumstances, it's the kind of thing we will raise with opposing counsel and we'll ask and we'll raise the issue and how directly or not directly that question is addressed will give us a lot of insight into what the answer is. But there isn't a great way short of free research and the information that your client has to actually nail down whether these notices are required. Well, thank you. Um, so I'm going to continue on with the reductions in force um, and talk about sort of sort of particularities of them. Um, you know, a reduction in force decision, the decision to include an individual in a reduction in force is really just like any other employment action and stands on its own bona fides. I think that there is some type of um, 
you know, misinformation out there that you can include somebody in a reduction in force, even if they're in a protected category, um, or you can do it because they're in a protected category. You know, they're out on leave. We want to eliminate this problem, and we're going to discuss discuss this um, more in detail. But you cannot take it, it, the decision to include somebody is just like the decision to terminate someone. You can't decide to include somebody in a layoff and be protected based on the layoff or the reduction in force if it's because of that protected characteristic or that protected leave that they're on. Okay, so how do you how do you decide who you can and cannot put uh, in a reduction in force? Uh, you figure out what is the criteria. First of all, what is what's the business reason here? Do you have to eliminate a certain number of individuals? Do you have to eliminate a certain department or perhaps even a certain office? What's, what's, the, what's the business reason? It's really good for management to have an internal memo that articulates very clearly what the reason is. We need to close our Tucson, Arizona office because we don't have any business in Arizona anymore. Or we have to reduce our sales force because we're at a period of time where we're not making any sales, right? What's the legitimate business reason? Have that put in a memo. Um, and then figure out what criteria are we going to use to determine who we're going to lay off. For example, if we're not just going to terminate the Arizona office, but reduce it by 50%. Or we're not going to eliminate mark the marketing function, but we're going to decrease it by a third. How are you going to figure out who is going to be targeted for that reduction in force for being included? Oftentimes, you focus on qualifications and skills. Uh, you might look at um, things like prior performance reviews or job knowledge. Um, so I like clients to first start out with, okay, what positions are actually being eliminated, right? And not, not going to be rehired within the next six months. There's going to have to be some significant business change before these individuals are going to be, and these positions are going to be um, filled, if at all. Ronlin, can I just yes. jump in with a quick mm -hmm. question? How, with the clients you've worked with for a long time, how do you make sure they come to you before they begin these types of conversations? Because we see the cases littered with, with written stuff that, that arm plaintiffs with you know, potential discriminatory remarks. How do you stay in touch and get out ahead of those issues? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, our corporate group really is on top of, you know, we, we have the benefit of having a general practice here. So our corporate group really knows if our client didn't get the financing that they need, right? Or if they're beginning to falter. And so we get looped in there, which, which is really um, helpful. And so what we'll do is we'll help the client put together a memo, sometimes to the board, um, talking about the business reason for the need for the reduction in force and how they anticipate going through it, what the criteria is going to be for selection. Um, and, and we'll go through some of that uh, in the next few slides. Um, you know, some of some of our clients are very new companies, right? So they, they, they're, they're new that they have employees who've been there for two years. <laughs> It's really, really difficult to make decisions comparing people who've only been there for two years, but sometimes they have to. Sometimes people haven't even been through a full 
cycle of employment. So there is no performance review, or if there is, there's just one performance review. And it's really hard to nail down the performance in 2023. So oftentimes what we do is we have a full review done and we'll go through that where different people in the same job category are reviewed for skill set, 2023 performance, 2022 performance, um, and sort of job knowledge. And, you know, those are all, for the most part, um, things that are subjective, right? So there's, I like to have, if possible, at least two reviewers where you don't have a lot of detail. Of course, if you were going to be, you know, making um, decisions based on objective criteria, like how many um, calls the person makes a day, that might be a little bit easier, but typically that's not where we are. Typically we're in the land of subjectivity. After you are go through and compare individuals in the same job, you want to run what we'll talk about an adverse impact analysis to see if statistically speaking, there's any adverse impact on any protected classes. So what is the adverse impact theory of discrimination? It's when there's a facially neutral policy or practice that has a significantly adverse impact on a protected group. It focuses on the consequences of the action, not intent. It's often asserted in class actions, um, and it's certainly growing. It's a rebuttable inference. So that's why the work that the management side does with their clients um, to really drill down and show business necessity and a thoughtful business approach to decisions about who's impacted is incredibly important. So there are two tests that you'll hear of. Um, the EEOC, the Department of Labor, and Department of Justice have the four-fifths test in analyzing these types of cases. It's really an 80% rule. Um, and this rule is typically not used in courts, however. This is for enforcement actions. Um, and it's if the selection rate for a protected class um, is less than 80% of the rate for the group with the highest rate, it shows evidence of an adverse impact. Uh, for example, um, let's see, if a Hispanic workers account for 20% of a workforce, but 80% of the employees scheduled for a reduction in force uh, are Hispanic, that would pose a significant lit litigation risk. Courts use the standard deviation test at the bottom of the slide that looks at two standard deviations to show an adverse impact. So what you need to do is you need to, when helping a client with a reduction in force, um, ask for a statistical set of information, a snapshot of the workforce both before and after the proposed reduction in force. And that adverse impact analysis should be run before final decisions are made. Um, and it would be ideal if those decisions could be run on an attorney-client privilege basis. 
So Bronwyn, if something trips, right? You, you run that statistical analysis and you recognize you've got what appears to be an adverse impact on a protected group. You're not telling your clients to go and make decisions based on protected status. We How are do not. you go through that? We are not. We are not. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for the softball there, David. Um, so that is, that happens, right? And you press pause, you regroup, right? You, if there's an adverse impact that is clear, um, it's typically based on subjective decisions. Like I, you mentioned, it is, is if it's based on 2022 and 2023 performance reviews. Well, then let's consider rerunning it. Let's consider adding two or three reviewers, right? So that the if there's one person who potentially has a bias, in this case, in the slide before, anti-Hispanic bias, you know, if two or three reviewers review, it's very unlikely that that same bias will pour through the um, decision making. And, um, you know, it may be that you still end up with an adverse impact, but it you'll have a better defense. You can't just then start um, not including the non-Hispanic people. That is just straight up discrimination, right? And, and, and enter David's shop. Um, you, you have to redo the analysis and try to do it um, in a way that potentially has more objectivity or more reviewers so it's more defensible. Yeah, that's a great point that you need to back it all the way up. I think the interesting thing from people who represent individuals is that these are not always easy claims to spot. Someone walks into your office and they may have an opinion, but if I was better with numbers, I probably wouldn't be in this profession, right? My ability to determine standard deviations off the top of my head is quite limited. And so while a lot of people in my practice area might not spot it, I suspect the risk for management is serious because those who do class action work, those who maybe represent unions are able to bring class actions or group, you know, collective actions that make the risk profile dramatically larger than just an individual claim. Right, right. So th this is sort of, you know, a slide that I see a couple times a week. <laughs> You know, this is this is what this is what we help clients with here. So here you're, you know, comparing for a reduction in force for inclusion in a reduction in force. Two people, both out of New York City with the same title. Um, and they're um, same gender, same ethnicity. Uh, looks like the selected individual is younger. Um, they have about the same tenure. Um, about the same pay. Um, and this person is in yellow is being selected for inclusion because of performance reasons. Okay, so what are the risk factors? There's a lot that we don't know about this, right? Is there a disability? Is there somebody out on leave? Is there a suspected disability that we don't know about? Um, these are things that your client might not tell you and that you need to ask. Um, is there veteran status? Is there other protected activity that we don't know about by just looking at the census? Um, what are the perform? Do either of these people have any performance issues? Are there is there any documentation? If not, let's put together an analysis so that we understand why one is selected. Um, it's it's there's almost never a very clear cut case right, for comparative performance, but it's important that there are documents 
establishing why uh, assistant sales manager 5937 was selected. So as we mentioned, and, and as David will point out, being included in a reduction in force does not insulate the employer from a claim. Um, if you selected the person because of their particular leave status or because that they are in some other protected class, um, the, the wrongful termination case continues to exist. Sullivan stands for that proposition. Um, so, you know, what are the risk factors, right? Race, gender, age, leave status. Um, what are some what are some things that you need to push back on your client on when you get um, some information about including somebody that that you have some questions about, right? If if the client's rationale for the decision changes, right? They were, um, you know, going from a place where, you know, they were in a job position that's no longer needed, and then you start hearing things like, well, their performance is terrible, right? That those two things are are inconsistent. What is the reason? Um, if the rationale for the decision doesn't track the reduction in force criteria that they set out. Right, we were we were looking at Arizona reducing the headcount in Arizona, and all of a sudden we're bringing in somebody from Illinois. Doesn't track. Let me ask a slightly different question, which is: if we're focusing on the reason for the decision, do you ever advise Bauman or Sasha, your clients, where there's an entire division going away to run similar types of analysis, or is the, the fact that this was clearly about? Deter, you know, eliminating an underperforming division or business unit, is that enough for you guys to sign off on moving forward? If, if you're complete, completely eliminating an entire division and not moving people around the country or offering, um, you know, people like, okay, well, we're closing Arizona, but, you know, we have space in Illinois. If that's not happening, then I sign off on it. Sasha? Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, uh, you always want to ask that second question of <laughs> like, okay, you are eliminating, but are we treating, are you thinking about treating some people differently, even within that elimination? And if the answer is yes, the question is, okay, why, right? Maybe it's your, you know, hopefully, and, and mostly the clients I deal with have a great business reason for why they are, right? Well, we're offering this other um, option to anybody who lives within a 75 mile radius or who has more than 10 years experience or whatever it is. Right. In which case, again, the answer may be, you know, it's it's one decision. There's no sort of um, uh, difference in decision being made. It's easier to sign off on that as soon as we start hearing, well, this person is just really great. Um, then, you know, my ears perk up a little bit and I want to know more. Thank you. One of the things that um, I think is tricky for um, management council to, to navigate is, um, you know, with new companies, with employees who are there just for two years, um, sometimes there either aren't the personnel files, so there, there, there aren't personnel files, <laughs> there aren't performance reviews, there's really nothing. First year, everything's going along great because, you know, everybody's new and it's exciting and there's great funding. And then, then the second year, sort of people either start seeing 
performance issues that they hadn't seen before. Um, and so that you're you're sort of arguing against a performance review from year one that was fairly glowing, but things have changed. Um, so it's really important to diligence that. And uh, if there has been a significant change um, to, to um, have that sort of documented in some way. Um, there is a, um, a question that I'll read that's sort of in this section, so if that's okay. And the question is, if you run a RIF selection analysis and see that it has a disparate impact on a particular group, then modify the RIF selection to produce a different result. Aren't you therefore selecting the new employees in that second RIF selection based on their protected uh, characteristics? So um, I'll let Sasha and David weigh in as well, but um, in each case um, for the RIF selection process, you have um, a so selection criteria um, in, a, in a best practice that has nothing to do with any um, protected class. And if you are triggering that twice after sort of switching your um, switching your criteria, it may be that there was some other issue that existed, maybe like one department got trained better um, or one, um, one group hired, um, you know, from a different group, um, in which case neither really would be um, intentionally discriminatory and there's a business reason for it. Um, but no, I disagree that you would be selecting new employees in that RIF based on their protected uh, characteristics. Sasha, and I'm sure I, you have experience with this too. Yeah, and I think I, I, maybe it's my not fully understanding the question, but to the extent that the question suggested that what, what we were saying was if you see a disparate impact, you should go back and and use a protected category to undo that disparate impact. That's that's certainly not what we're saying. I think what I heard Bon was saying was um, look at the criteria and and see what you know were those sufficiently objective or sufficiently um, um, verifiable, right, or, or reliable, um, and maybe do a further review or whatever it is. But not not to say okay, we've we've managed to identify um, too many quote unquote too many Hispanics, and so let's unidentify some Hispanics and select some white people instead. I don't think that that would not be the <laughs> that would not be the preferred approach to um to, if you identify that um that issue. But I, I think if you look at it practically and analytically, what Sasha and Brahman are talking about is exactly right. I mean if I'm in discovery and I find evidence that there was a prior proposed decisional unit and different decisions about who is going to be laid off. And then I get into deposition and that manager says, well on the advice of counsel we decided to reset the decisions. I may try and make hay out of the idea that at some point in this process, protected characteristics played a role in the decision making. But I think the better analysis is not the decision that spoke to your the plaintiff's termination. That began after we kicked out the, the problematic riff and went down the road that led to your client's termination. And if there is no protected status in that or bias, no unlawful motive in that decision-making process, I think I'm going to struggle to prevail, notwithstanding the hay and discomfort I can make and cause. Thank you. So we'll um, just kind of go through this quickly, but um, going back to my diligence issues and looking at a uh, employee census, you know, we may be asked to compare these two 
particular positions. And I just want to quickly bullet, uh, go through a few bullets about what you, uh, if you're advising your uh, client, would want to sort of drill down on. Uh, here we're um, looking at a finance and operations analyst who's being compared to a financial analyst. The real question here is why are we even comparing these two people? They have different positions. The financial analyst is out on FMLA leave and is uh, being deemed to be redundant. Um, so let's see here, you know, can the finance and operations analyst um, absorb all of the job duties of the financial analyst? That's a question that the client should be asked. Alternately, could the financial analyst have absorbed the job duties of the finance and operations analyst, right? So turn it on its head because that is a possibility. Um, we've already talked about eliminating somebody on FMLA leave. Yes, you can do it. Uh, however, if you are doing it because they are on FMLA leave, you've violated the act. Um, go ahead. Yeah, one quick note. I think there's a common misconception, particularly amongst plaintiff attorneys, that every riff is about cutting costs. It is not, right? I look at this slide and I look at the other comparator we had. And in both cases, the first thing that jumped out at me is you're cutting the person who makes less money. This does not make sense. But I think Bronwyn set it up the right way. What is the goal? What is the business trying to achieve? And that may be eliminate redundancies and not cost. That may be relocate. That can be a whole lot of things that isn't just cutting dollars and cents. Thanks, David. So riffs and employees on leave, um, you know, FMLA, we've talked about um, ADA, Chapter 151B, uh, those with disabilities, um, a, a leave of absence is a reasonable accommodation, so you can't terminate somebody because they're on a leave of absence, nor could you terminate someone because they have a disability. Um, for those who are on mass paid family medical leave, be very careful, right? There is a presumption built in the statute that anyone who is terminated within six months of leave um, has, has a claim. So of course, you, it's a rebuttable presumption, but it's something to be very careful with. I'm going to turn over to Sasha. Oh, go ahead, David. Yeah, it's really important just to note that the PFML rebuttable presumption is not just for those people who filed with the state and got benefits. Anybody who has what would be a qualifying event uh, that would have entitled them to benefits is afforded that protection. And so the, the gotcha game that says, well, you didn't raise your hand and get those benefits doesn't entitle the retaliatory act to take place. And so employers need to be really careful when they deal with people who are sick, dealing with sick family members and, to, and going out on leave like that. Yeah, and, and to, to pile on a, li a little bit on that, the FMLA and the PFML are not entirely overlapping in um, what some of what's permitted and required. And so uh, employees who are eligible for both um, may have um, a surprising amount of uh, protection for um, compared to uh, employees who are only protected under the FMLA, and and frankly, compared to um, what employers may be used to since before the PFML came into effect. Um, so uh, I'm going to turn now to the ADEA disclosures, and there's a little bit of um, bookending that we're trying to do with this, because um, oftentimes in reductions in force, uh, employers are having to deal with um, both thinking about the WARN Act and thinking about what those things require and doing certain amounts of counting and, and reviewing um, who which group should be um, considered 
Uh, and then also doing it for uh, compliance with the um, Age Discrimination and Employment Act, and particularly the OWBPA, the Older Workers Benefit Protection Act, requirements that relate to seeking a release of age discrimination in employment claims. Um, and although those are both disclosures, and although there is some counting and some um, description that goes on, these are, are very different things, and it is important for employers planning separations to really try to keep them as separate as possible um, for purposes of ensuring appropriate compliance with each of the requirements. So um, under the ADEA, um, as soon as there is a, quote, incentive program, uh, whether voluntary or vo involuntary, that um, provides for two or more employees um, to be able to take advantage of the program in exchange for a release, you are in OWBPA land. Um, and that obviously is a much smaller um, number of people to be thinking about then with respect to the WARN Act. Um, so what does it mean to have to uh, provide a disclosure that complies with the OWBPA? Um, well, it's only for employees who are age 40 or over and only with respect, to, of course, to employers that are covered um, uh, or within the purview of the ADEA. Um, those employees are entitled to certain additional uh, information um, when it is, I think, Bonwin, maybe the next slide has... Um, uh, the next uh, piece, yeah, when there's a, an individual um, who is being um, offered uh, the ability to sign a release of age discrimination claims um, in exchange for something of value, of course, um, when it's an individual, the um, OWBPA requires all the things on this slide, but of particular importance, um, an advisement of their rights under the ADA, 21 days to consider whether to release um, uh, sign the release, and then an additional seven days uh, to potentially revoke that agreement. Um, the 21 days is something that um, can be shortened by the employee. If they wish to sign on the second or third day or, or even the same day, um, they're able to do that. The seven days is uh, revocation period is not something that either the employer or the employee can shorten by agreement or otherwise. Um, and when it's a single uh, individual, the, the Items on the slide are what's required, in other words, being um, uh, told about their rights and their ability to take some time to consider um, whether to sign the agreement. Um, on the next slide, uh, we talk about um, what happens when you have a group termination. Now, in the, in the case of a group, in the case of the ADA, a group here really is, as I said before, just two or more employees. So it can be nothing that what you would traditionally think of as a RIF, and yet you may have to provide these additional um, uh, protections to employees uh, age 40 or over. Um, the additional piece of information and um, uh, requirements are stated on the slide, but I'll draw your attention to the fact that the 21 days turns into 45 days. Um, and uh, that same seven-day revocation period applies and that there is this additional ADA or OWBPA disclosure um, that must be provided to all employees over 40. Sasha, I think my clients really push back on this. They, this is hard. Um, it's hard to get the disclosures right. Um, you know, everybody's ages right. You know, you're planning a reduction in force, and then all of a sudden, people's ages are changing while you're doing the planning. Um, and I get a lot of pushback. Right? Well, you know, what if we just do like one person on this day, another person on that day? Is that is that a group termination or not? Right. So 
um, you know, the, the, the way I like to walk my more reluctant clients through this always is to remind them that this is information that um, affected employees are entitled to in order to be able to make an informed decision about whether waive their rights. And so as soon as you are monkeying around with, you know, the timing of things or whether to provide something or not, you are likely to be um, on the other end of the table at a deposition with David um, asking you questions about, well, why did you do this and all that? And, you know, difficult questions to answer about, well, did you in fact um, provide information that the employee reasonably should have had in order to be able to decide whether to waive their claims? And again, the, the claim is whether there was age discrimination in the decision-making process. And so um, the, the, ways that I like to reassure employers, um, you know, who are more reluctant to disclose, let's say, ages is, you know what, um, it's required by the law. And if you get pushback from, you know, your senior executives or whoever it is, um, at the end of the day, this is an obligation that you must comply with. And the consequences for non-compliance are, frankly, in my view, more significant than the uh, potential, you know, discomfort that some people may have with disclosing certain information. Understanding, of course, that, you know, with a small enough workforce, even if you are just disclosing um, what's minimally required, and, and that's what I always advise, which is, you know, the job title or the classification and the age, you know, if you only have one CFO, <laughs> certainly people are going to know who that person is and what their age is. Um, but, you know, it is it is a statutory requirement. And, and I will say, I frankly have never seen the other end of it actually blow up in any way. I don't know, um, Bongler or David, if you have, but um, certainly with... Uh, folks who are more reluctant initially, I've never had them come back and say, see, I told you, <laughs> you know, this was going to be a problem. Maybe I've just lucked out. No, I think I've been pretty lucky there, too. There have been a couple times where we were uh, doing a reduction that was an entire department and the client wanted everybody to sign within five days. Um, and so we, you know, did a CYA and um, email and sure enough, people accepted. It was like, well, there were people who were over 40, but we were eliminating this whole group. And so um, people, we did not get it. You know, the client knew that we were not getting a release of an age-related claim, and they were comfortable with that. It was more important for them to get a release for particular reasons. And so we went that route, but that was a little unusual and made me uncomfortable as a lawyer because you're paying, you know, severance that you don't otherwise have to pay and not getting a full release. But that was the better place to be in our case. I have in one case that I can think of had to reach out to opposing counsel and said, where's where's the data? You guys need to be giving me the decisional unit information. And it was forthcoming shortly thereafter. But I think the point Bronwyn just made is the interesting for people who represent individuals, your clients need to know that having to sign without 21 days doesn't invalidate the entire release. It makes the age claim release ineffective. But if it's not your claim, it doesn't matter. And a lot of people, particularly our clients, see the 21 days, know the 21 days, and think that's the end-all, be-all. And it's a very narrow part of what we do. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to try to zoom through the last little bit here, but I didn't I didn't want to um, skip too, too far ahead. Um, just as a reminder, what, it, what does need to be provided is the job titles and ages of individuals who are eligible um, for the program, as it's called under the statute. Um, and those um, in the same uh, classification or unit who are not eligible. Um, and all of that is with respect to what? With respect to the decisional unit. And that's another place where, um, Bronwyn, I, I suspect you will agree, I get a lot of pushback or at least a lot of 
um, questions and back and forth that has to be um, sort of gotten through to get the business on board with understanding, first of all, what are we even talking about with respect to the decisional unit and what are we going to put in these disclosures? Um, and, and frankly, I find um, there are some times where it's just obvious, right? You know, you are closing the Tulsa office, you are, you know, cutting this division. And sometimes where it is genuinely not obvious and there is genuinely potentially um, different opinions or, or different conclusions that reasonable people could come to. Um, and I always say, um, uh, you know, do what you could, uh, again, sort of defend yourself, uh, um, you know, within a deposition, right? If somebody asks you, well, why did you disclose this group and not that group, right? If there is a business reason for doing that, um, uh, or, or why did you include these people and not that those people? Because if you are monkeying around with the information, then again, you're going to fall into this trap of you haven't actually provided the information the person reasonably needs to decide whether to release their age discrimination claim. Um, next slide is we can, I think. Um, so uh, you do need to um, summarize the decision-making process for the RIF in the sense of providing, you know, what is the decisional unit that was considered? Was it the entire company? Okay. Uh, but just be prepared that you'll then have to disclose the ages of the entire company, you know, and and um, if it's not that, uh, if, you're, if you uh, as an employer are reluctant to do that, then you want to say that there was a different decisional unit, fine, but be prepared to support um, why you're saying that the decisional unit was not the entire company, but some subset. Um, and this information, so the um, decisional unit, the basic criteria for who was selected and not selected, the amount of time that was provided to employees to consider um, whether to sign both those who were given um, the additional information, those who were over 40 and and those not, um, and then the the um, information on the job titles and, and ages of the folks who were affected and not affected. All of that um, I typically would put into like an attachment or an exhibit to the separation agreement. And it only, again, goes along to the folks who are over 40. And um, there are many thorny questions that we could get into, um, but I am conscious that we did want to um, have a few more um, uh, moments to talk about some um, pay issues. Um, so I will say that um, these are not necessarily easy questions to answer. There are some answers in the regulation. So if there's a question, for example, um, about what to provide when the RIF occurred in stages, um, at least um, start with uh, looking back at the regulations that are cited here. And then, of course, any of us would be um, happy to speak to you uh, about these kinds of issues. So we'll go to pay now. Is it just 26? Okay, great. I think that's to you, David. Yep. And on that note, I think the one quick last comment on these uh, decisional unit data and, and notices and age claims is that while you may get the blessing of, of your management council on a disparate impact claim, that same statistical analysis can be used to make a disparate treatment claim. Court told us in Lipschitz that if I can take a look at the statistics and show that people in my protected class were treated uh, differently than people in other protected classes, I can use that to prove my claim. And so when I get that data, the first thing I do is punch it into a spreadsheet. And I think a lot of my colleagues do too. So be careful about the optics in these situations more broadly if this is a path you're pursuing. Um, I guess with a few minutes left moving into wage world, there are two big statutes, the Fair Labor Standards Act and the Massachusetts Wage Act. Um, for most plaintiff-side employment attorneys in Massachusetts, we know very little about the Fair Labor Standards Act because the Wage Act covers so much more. Um, I want to just take a quick moment. It looks like we do have a question here 
before we dive into this, wondering how you have been advising clients under adjusting severance agreements in light of the NLRB's McLaren-McComb decision, which seems to return to the precedent that employers violate the NLRB when they offer severance agreements that require employees to totally, to broadly waive rights under the act. Not necessarily. <laughs> no, I, I'm happy to address it. Um, we have um, adjusted our uh, severance agreement to have certain carve outs for retained rights um, that employees will continue to have if they sign the agreement. Um, and, uh, you know, I view that the the um, the decision um is is does does require an adjustment, but um, you know it only relates to certain claims. So I'm comfortable with having those retained rights sort of stay in there. Yeah. But we have made adjustments to our agreements. Jack, I think it's a great question. I'd recommend another BBA's labor and employment section put out a program on this issue and other uh, labor updates. You can probably find that in the database of webinars. They'll probably address it more robustly. From my perspective, and I think uh, I've talked to Brown and Sasha about this, I don't recommend my clients put a whole lot of their negotiating leverage into these issues. I'm seeing a lot of employers put carve-outs or qualifiers on the provisions and demanding them. And at the end of the day, they're going to be unlawful or they're not. The NLRB is going to change its mind again or it's not. But I don't see a lot of benefit to spending your time fighting about it right now. Um, with three minutes left, let me just hit the most important high note here with the Massachusetts Wage Act. It is strict liability. We don't care why. If you violate the statute, if you fail to pay someone all of their earned wages on the date that it is due, the next day, the next minute is that it becomes multiplied by three and reasonable attorneys fees become available. Even if it's a mistake, even it's because we didn't have money, even it's because we calculated the days wrong, even it's because we sent it to the wrong David Brody, it's a violation. I had a client who uh, whose employer was hit by a phishing scam and the employer sent the money to a different bank account. And this went on for a period of time. That's a wage violation. It's Bronwyn might suggest it's impractical and needs to be addressed by the legislature, but it's a wage violation. And the biggest issue that we have here that people need to think about in the uh, the RIF context is the wage deferrals. And I think we've got that a couple slides ahead. I think it's slide 28, if we can just take a peek, because the seminal decision on this still remains a decision written by uh, the late Justice Gantz while he was on the Superior Court, stating that agreements to defer wages violate the Wage Act. That is meaningfully different, right? The Dobbins v. CIO view court is, Sorry, I think, the seminal case. That's just fine. Um, that's meaningfully different than modifying the terms and conditions in someone's employment. And where I see wage deferral cases, the defense I often encounter is, this was not a deferral. We reduced your salary. There's nothing unlawful about reducing somebody's salary and even agreeing to pay them a bonus upon seed funding or something that happens in the future. But if what we say is, don't leave us now, we're going to cut your pay, we're going to hold back 50% of your pay for when that angel investor comes through, the employer has just put in writing that they violated a strict liability statute with treble damages. And so it's a big deal that you got to be really careful about because those are cases that make my life easy. And they occur. And it's important to keep in mind if you're a multi-state employer and you've got an employee in Massachusetts who's living and working in Massachusetts, you likely are subject to the Wage Act. If you are a Massachusetts company with employer employees all over the country, you are likely subject to the Wage Act. There's a whole lot of cases coming out now making clear just how strong the reach of this statute is. And it's something to be particularly careful about.
And with no time left, I do want to slide back to the executive compensation issues and just flag that executives present a whole host of different issues for employers to consider. They've often got contractual severance if they're terminated without cause or upon good reason. Contract drafting becomes really important. Does it say that in order to get your severance, you need to provide a release of claims? Or does it say you need to provide a separation agreement that may have non-disparagement, may have uh, non-competition -com non and non-solicits? Words matter and change what an employee may have to sign. What about incentive compensation? There is a strong argument, I believe, that to the extent the employer has completed the labor and earned the wage, notwithstanding a due date in the future, you can't hold off that incentive comp for release or say that because they weren't there on payday, they're not entitled to it. This remains somewhat open at the upper appellate levels in Massachusetts, but I'll take that case nine times out of 10, uh, 11 times out of 10. Um, there are also issues around board seat implications. Make sure that your contracts are well drafted. If you are terminated, you agree to step down from that board role. I can think of nothing less comfortable than having fired your, your CFO and realizing they're still the secretary on the board. Um, what about your equity and your quasi-equity and your deferred comp? All of these have plan mechanics. What happens when somebody loses their job and under what circumstances? Is it forfeiture? Do they do their invested shares accelerate? Do they need to get releases to get certain benefits? What about a post-termination exercise period? If that employee is approaching uh, a vesting cliff, is there a strong argument that they're entitled to that money under the covenant of good faith and fair dealing, under the, the grim and the fortune analysis? All of these are issues that make terminating executives particularly prickly and create a lot of space for a lot of work for all of us in this area. Um, racing through, and I know I'm over the last thing, beware of 409A. Be careful. To the extent that you're accelerating contractual obligations, you may run into this, this issue, which creates a 20% surcharge. And so as you're making deals, be very careful to consult with people who are good with numbers, good with this code. It is not me. I don't know about my colleagues here. Consult a tax person. Be very, very careful. Ah, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I thought this was incredibly informative, and I'm just so glad I don't have Sasha and Bronwyn's job. It's not easy to do what you guys do. Um, thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions, feel free to email us offline, and I believe contacting the BBA, you can get this slide deck at your convenience or watch it again, because why not? Thanks so much for joining us today, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone.